welcome to Doing Diversity in Writing, the podcast where we, as writers, explore the do's and don'ts of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany Ann Tucker, and with me is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Let's get started. Hi, Marielle. How are you doing this week? Hey, Bethany. I'm okay, still trying to fix my novel, um, and I'm working. Oh, I cannot remember when this episode goes out, but right now, as we record, I'm working on finishing um, the third volume of two weeks of writing. So I need to do the ISBN and the cover and like finalize all those details. Um, so that's going to be this week. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that because I'm actually a little bit ahead of schedule. So I'm really glad about that. How are you? Good. I'm glad to hear you're ahead of schedule because, you know, December 31st, I'm going to be looking to have my hands on that new planner. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, because the, the publication date is is like the first of, the, the official one is the first of December, but it's usually available a little sooner. So, you know, I'm going to let you know, so you can be like the first one to buy it like every year. I have to. I yeah. I'm yeah. very much a creature of habit and I like everything set up before the new year starts. Yeah. Um so yeah, I'm very excited yeah. to hear that it's going well. Yes. Um how am I doing? Uh I, I knew you were gonna ask me this question when we sat down to record today. And the thing that kept going through my head is I'm sorry, but spiders may have been harmed in the filming of this podcast. What did you do? <laughs> It's gotten cold here in Georgia, like relatively cold. And um, spiders are coming in again. And we had mostly stopped spiders from entering my office. We have all these jars and like pieces of cardboard and we scoop them up and throw them out. Even the venomous ones, like the black widows, the brown widows, the, um, the wolf spiders and the hobo spiders. Like we try not to kill them. Like they're just trying to live their lives. But sometimes they're very tenacious and they want to hang around my desk and I can't catch them without hurting them. So I'm crossing fingers. No spiders were harmed, but probably somewhere. Ouch. Oh, you, you just mentioned spiders that I've never seen in my life and I'm feeling extra blessed today. <laughs> I'm glad I could help you feel blessed. Spiders are not my thing. And it's, I, I do the same thing, right? Like the, with everything except cockroaches. Um, that's just, yeah, no. Uh, but with everything I mean, else, I knock try on to. Wood. We haven't had cockroaches in a while. Okay. Well here it's, it's finally cooling off as well. Um, I mean, I'm still sitting in a tank top as we record this with the windows open and I mean, but um, yeah, so I haven't seen any cockroaches either. And I think, I think the season for that is over, but yeah, usually it's for me, it's also the jar, the jar and the piece of cardboard, and then just on some plant on my balcony and then just enjoy. Yeah. Just try to send them back to where they can live without, you know, getting in our way. Yeah. yeah I think writing wise, I'm at that weird stage where I, I just published a book, just published two books. And now you're like, 
you're trying to decide what to do next because it was for me it was very much a push and now I have these three projects I'm looking at as well as a podcasting project and the book that this will become eventually and I'm like okay what do I focus my energy on next and I think I'm just exploring what's next for this week so yeah that's really good I I call it the post-publishing hangover because you you rev (laughs) up you get all excited and you publish it and then there's almost like this drop in energy and you just have to plan for it. Like you think you're going to be really excited and then you're like waiting for the sales to play, come in and they're, they're not like, they're not super fast because it's the first book in a new series and you just have to like plan for that drop. And it's, it's happened to me a yeah. few times and it's still, it's still rough. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually, I'm trying the, the, we haven't talked this far into the year yet, but I want to try and get a few weeks off December, January. So that very much depends on when we need to record uh, season two. Um, but uh, because I'm also expecting that drop. And in that, when that happens, I just want to have, I don't want to have anything else to do, but just rest and read books and um, watch some television series and stuff. I just want to be able to cocoon um and and just sort of like yeah like ride out the hangover and and then and and, and then wait to see I mean I have plenty of projects waiting on me (laughs) as soon as this book is finished um but yeah I'm, I'm trying to prepare for the drop now by like setting time apart so I can just spoil myself a little bit I find like traveling, take, like even visiting a museum or going to the beach or just bringing some new energy because you just use so yes. much energy up to give birth to this new book. You just, yeah. it's not really that you did anything wrong or anything went badly. It's just you need to recharge. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think it's, um, I think it's really, it's, I think it's part of the process. It, yeah. it's, 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 same way. Um, getting a new idea, being super excited and writing the book. And then there's always this, you, you hate it then you love it again. Then you hate it again. Uh, you love it again. And you're this close to throwing it in the bin or maybe you put it in the bin. You're this close setting it to fire. Oh, you love it again. That's kind of like, we, we all go through that. And I think the same is with the, with when you publish, right? No matter how amazing you feel about the book, it is a huge discharge right Mm -hmm. and you need to charge up again yeah no I have been through the cycle so many times with writing books that by the time that I absolutely hate it if like 95% of the words are written but I'm hating it completely I know that it's almost good like I'm almost there because right (sighs) before like like right before I'm like okay yeah I have a book I always hate it. I always feel like an absolute failure. I always feel like, who am I to write a book? I can't write. And I'm like, when that happens, I just like, it's literally become a ting for me to be like, oh, you're almost there. <laughs> I, I wish I had that confidence. I should work on that. Uh, but that's a good, that would be good because my previous draft of my young adult fantasy book, I hated it. So does that mean that this is the final draft before I send it to you? And so that you can tear it apart. Hmm. Maybe. I mean, hmm, let's see. I'm going to start writing the next book in my series. So you need to give me this one. 
Yeah, and you do because I finished it. I finished your book. I mean, I mean, I've, I've read it before, of course, because I edited it. But but I finished. Uh, you made some quite some changes. So I've now finished the iteration that I yes the the, the yeah. So I do wanna. I forgot. I forgot. No, I, I didn't forget the ending, but I forgot some of the other the other characters' endings. I mean, right, the book I, is I, so big that my partners are calling it a doorstopper or a weapon. Yes, and you you sent you show me pictures of the of the proof copy of the paperback, and it's like ah, it's huge. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, so yeah, I I also want you to to write that second book, please. All right. Well, one of the things that I did in the last version of that book is I did do a lot of tweaks to language and language markers. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today, because it did make such a big difference just having a few people look at it and point out what I had subconsciously done. That is even like though I can teach subtle. <laughs> it's true. That's what happened. Yeah, it's but it's good because this was completely on. Um, I, I was not prepared for this subtle move into the topic. So bring it. it it's a subtle topic. One of the reasons I like it. Yes. All right. So this is going to be this episode, episode 10, uh, will be a continuation of what we talked about in episode nine. Um, language is both conscious and subconscious. And lately I've become fascinated with how subconscious language is. As writers, we use craft um, we, we craft fantasies, experiences. Um, we put, we form these ideas inside the reader's minds, like we're witches and wizards or something. Um, and much of this happens in a trance state. So when you're reading, you're often in a trance state while you're reading a book, which is, so things are happening beyond your conscious mind. But we, as writers, can be conscious about what we're doing in our reader's unconscious mind while we're writing that book that puts them in that trance because that's the thing right like until you really examine what you're doing with the words there is so much we don't know about our languages there's so much we don't perceive about how languages work what they do what a single word does in whatever context exactly exactly this is one of the reasons I love learning second languages, because you start to notice things about your own native tongue that you wouldn't have otherwise, especially when you do it as an adult. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that, that is true. Like, I'm still trying to learn Greek, although the schools have an open chat the, uh, um, for adult education. So mm -hmm. um, during COVID, when the, when the pandemic hit, the classes stopped and they haven't picked them up yet so I'm kind Aww. of like and it's like I, there's a million other ways to learn a language but I'm very much I like the um, the rhythm of just going to a classroom having a teacher you can ask your questions to otherwise there's so much else on my plate that I don't I just don't make time for it yeah um, but I do want to say by the way that you don't necessarily you just because I'm also like Learn, learning another language can also be like a privilege, like having a privilege to learn another language. It's not a privilege for everyone because some people need to learn another language um, in this world, depending on, on where they are. But I'm just going to say that you don't, so you don't need that other language. It helps a lot, but you don't need it to examine um, your own language and the choices that you make when it comes to which words you use and where you use it right it, it's for all yeah. of us even yes. those even for those of us who, who uh, happen to speak one language only um like becoming more conscious of this of, of of your language and how it works 
it can really help us align more with the values that we actually have. It really can. It really can. Um, and then when we are using language, um, we really can design a character and do a lot more showing rather than telling mm -hmm. by just being really conscious of the choices that that the language they use themselves, thinking or speaking, and the language we use about them. Yeah, that too, yeah. All right, so I'm gonna start by telling on myself as an example. Um, language is a historical construct, and as such, it carries a lot of baggage. I mean, history has baggage. So positive, <laughs> negative, just plain weird, interesting, like seriously people go look at etymology online that etymology dictionary um a couple years back my boyfriend heard me use the word gypped g-y-p-e-d i think is how it's usually spelled i haven't really seen it spelled um i grew up hearing it all the time from my grandparents and then my parents my, my mother especially aunts and uncles um and i thought it was sort of a version of the word chipped like chipping off gold off a bar or something like that um and shortchanging the buyer because I knew you like shave a little off the gold bar and hold back some of the price that you were giving someone. And I didn't know until my boyfriend told me that the word was actually a derogatory verb form of the noun gypsy, a term applied to Roman or traveler communities in Europe. And it's been a few years, but I have managed to erase the word from my vocabulary, even though I used it for like 31 years. <laughs> Um, so, because I didn't know where it came from. So, do you feel bad now for using the word then? I don't, because I had no, I had no knowledge. I really, really thought it just meant something innocuous. Um, but now that, as soon as I knew, I didn't want to use it anymore. No. I, I don't think it serves much of a purpose to just keep feeling guilty about something we didn't know um but once I knew like couldn't go back <laughs> I would feel less yeah. of a person that I want to be um so yeah I if unless we're going out of our way to feel ignorant I think once we're educated that's just the point that we can be like all right I walked through this gate now I don't use it anymore so it's all about learning how to be better Yes. Like it's not about, and this is very Brené Brown, um, and we say it all the time to each other um, around recording the podcast, is um, Brené Brown says, um, we're not, I'm not here to be right, we're here to get it right. I really, really like that because it allows for growth. Yes, it, and it, it allows for, it, it's, a, it's a kind of an affirmative way of doing it instead of like, Oh, one strike, you're out. Because that's yeah. very de demotivating. Yeah, if you don't um, know, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so, but but actually, so I, I really like this point. And it's, it, um, like, it shows one of the ways that language can be unconsciously, like, racist or, or otherwise problematic, right? It makes me think of this article that my girlfriend sent me a while ago. Uh, it talked about words that we use all the time that have very racist undertones. And I had no idea, right? Uh, some of them were obvious, some were not obvious at all. So words included were um, words like nitty gritty, mm. uh, mass, master bedroom. That um, was problematic. But that, that, but that made sense to me. 
mm-hmm. right? As soon as I heard master bed, as soon as I read master bedroom in the list, I was like, yes, that completely made sense to me. Uh, but nitty gritty, I had no idea where that came from. Same for hip hip hooray. That apparently has very racist undertone. So I'll, I'll, what, what I'll do is um, in, I'll include a link uh, in the show notes to where I found it because it was really enlightening. And since then, I've been really careful. And the thing is, I also now when I see other people use it, I sort of have like this this sort of like um, like a horn going off in my like this 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 alarm going off in my head like ah. Um, <laughs> but it's 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 very simple because. If you haven't read the article, you are not going to know. Yeah. Right? Because it's yeah. very specific. Um, but yeah, it goes to show, indeed, what you said, that um, there's there's no use for me feeling awful about all the time to use the words like master bedroom, right? But I can do better now and say words like the primary bedroom or the main bedroom which is some of the uh, solutions they gave. Because the, the article also gives, uh, where possible, they give alternatives that you could use instead. So which I have really tried, awesome. yeah. Yeah. Which is really awesome. The house we have yeah. now doesn't have a master bedroom. doesn't have that primary bedroom kind of status. They're all, all the same, which is interesting. That um, is good. Yeah. Other examples for language um, that it is can be um, unconsciously sexist or ageist or ableist. Um, yeah. It's not just racism. It's really just baked in and it's not our fault. But like we keep saying, it's something we can change. Language is living after all. Like new words get made up all the time and then they become words everyone uses. Yeah, and it's forever changing. And, and you know, the editor in me, sometimes I like that and sometimes I don't really appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, sometimes it feels like especially the English language like the only rule is that there is no rule as long as you're consistent so that (laughs) is uh, that gets me into really interesting discussions with clients sometimes Um, but yes those myself (laughs) right yes okay so let's dive deeper into the topic like what else is going on with the words we use like do we have more ways to apply the concept of you know marked versus unmarked Yes. All right. So let's start with gender because there are so many easily accessible ways for us to grasp this. Right. So if we go back to what we discussed last week in episode nine, when we're talking about gender in the English language, right, you have the male for male, so M-A-L-E, that is the unmarked form. And then there's the female, the word female, which is the marked. And it's right there in the spelling, right? It's M-A-L-E for the male. And then with female comes the addition of F-E at the beginning of the word. So it's it's the mark that it's different, right? It's marked as different. Yeah. In the English language, the same goes for the word man, which is unmarked, and woman, right? Which is marked by adding W-O to it. Yeah. So in Dutch, we don't have this. The word okay. for woman and man or male and female are, do not look alike. And in Greek, the, the distinction doesn't hold either. Although in both languages, um, man can stand in for both genders, as in mankind. And anthropology, which comes from the word anthropos, which comes from the Greek word for man, that is the study of people. Not just of man, it's the study of people. But the word derives from the word for man. Got it. 
Okay, I'm following. In English, um, as well, male is the neutral and female denotes some additional marker, like you just said. Um, female comes from the old French, femelle, F-E-M-E-L-L-E, meaning woman or female in the 12th century. But that word, femelle, I, I'm not even going to pretend that I can speak old French, <laughs> um, comes from the medieval Latin. Be careful, it's medieval Latin. Femella, F-E-M-E-L-L-A, which means a female, which in turn comes from Latin, femella. Um, yes, that's the same word, same spelling, but it's showing up in languages that were children of other languages. So um, medieval Latin coming from Latin and some of the words are the same. So originally the word in Latin was femella, F-E-M-E-L-L-A, meaning a young female. The diminutive word of femina, F-E-M-I-N-A, meaning woman, but literally she who suckles. So the, the one who can give milk to someone, the younglings. So if you geek out on language like I do, like this, go look up etym etymolo uh, etymology online, E-T-Y-M-O-N-L-I-N-E.com. And we'll have the link in the show notes because yes, I know that's hard to remember. Yeah. So the word we now have as female was actually only changed into a marked subform of male in the 14th century, which is how the mela or mel, M-E-L-L-E in female was changed to M-E-M-A-L-E. -E. So they took the mela and turned it into male. Yeah. But it was a more neutral word originally meaning she who suckles before it got changed into what we have now which makes it a marked form of the word male it seems that um, it was originally used for just young humans and then the female of animals and then long story short it arrived at its current usage that we have today so but funnily when we talk about feminine versus masculine we can still see feminine deriving from femina yeah that's very obvious right yeah okay yeah so in the English language, I mean, you're not the only language geek here. So <laughs> in the hey, English language, awesome. yeah. in the English language, right, we're already saying that to be female can be read as a divergence or departure from being male instead of being its own natural independent state. And even when the word for man and woman is different, which happens in some languages like Dutch and Greek, then you still see a lot of languages in which the word for man can come to mean people in general right? Well, the word for woman cannot represent each and every gender. Go think about that. Yeah. These ideas get baked in really early. It's one of the reasons I think we can't beat ourselves up about not always living up to the standards of equality that we want to. I mean, it's hard not to, but the way we are about language affects us like from a really young age onwards. It does, at least subliminally, which then it goes on to affect everything else very quietly. Mm -hmm. I noticed pretty on. Don't think children don't notice. I did as young as six. Then again, I was in a cult. So I understand that men ruled the world and that Eve, the progenitor of my sex, was taken from Adam's rib, etc. I wanted to count my father's ribs because I was pretty sure he was missing one from my mom. But that's a different story. Quite, <laughs> I was going to say quite a problematic story, by the way. Um, but yeah, so here we have at the base of the English language, maleness being the default category. Where else does this show up? If we go back to French, then we have the word forming element, E-T-T-E, -T -T -E, 
or et. Um, again, I've been told my French is very bad and I'm not even pretending I can speak it. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of French and English. It's true. Uh, that Norman invasion really did something. Um, this has come to be a diminutive, the E-T-T-E. It's a mark. And so when we're talking about marked and unmarked language, it's a mark. And it often shows that something is not as serious, as big, or as significant as the unmarked form of the word to which it is attached. That's forming a new term. So a few examples of words that have been formed this way are statuette, kitchenette, so like a smaller type of a kitchen, not a full one, featurette, like a smaller feature, vignette, rosette, etc. So words with et attached they typically come to mean something that is small, that is a smaller version or an imitation of the original unmarked noun. Yes. And that E-T-T-E suffix, as well as others like I-N-E or E-S-S, also can be used to gender a noun. For example, bachelor, bachelorette, you still had that diminutive attached. Yeah. Uh, usher, usherette, although now we just use usher pretty much for both genders. Um, jockette, actor, actress, hero, heroine, and so on. Oh, and hunter and huntress for ESS, but that's been used, that's being used less often than before. Yeah. So it's really good to know that we are moving away from these, um, right? And that we are allowing for more fluidity. So, like, I'm thinking today you'll often hear, hear the word server instead of like waiter and waitress. And uh, you'll also see firefighter used more often versus fireman. And every language has its own examples, I would say. Like in, in Dutch, for example, it's more common these days to use the universal term for nurse instead of the one indicating a female nurse, which has been the, which has for a long time been the universal term for it in the Dutch language because there were no male nurses. But my brother's a male nurse. It's so hard to find shirts or bling or like little gifts that are not gendered female still. Yeah. So, so in, in the Netherlands, we they eventually swapped. Uh, and now they just use uh, one term, which is universal. Awesome. Yeah. 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 So this is a change, like you just pointed out, that's happening in our living memory. I remember when everyone was a waitress when I was a kid. Um, mm. and now I automatically use the word server. I don't like if people say waiter, waitress, I'm like, oh, that's a little old fashioned. So going back to linguistics, English can and does have plenty of words that don't rele uh, relegate modification to the male noun to signify the female form. For example, keen and queen are quite distinct from each other. And we are also more often learning, um, leaning into using unmarked terms. So once seen as a simple male for everyone involved in an activity. For example, usher, like I just said, now refers to everyone who ushers instead of just a man. So it is yeah. changing. It is, yeah. But it, it actually brings me back to a comment I made in our last episode um, about it being more okay to dress young girls in boys' clothes than it is to dress young boys in girls' clothes, right? Like, So in wanting something to be universal, what you often see happening is that the female is stripped away. So yeah. the universal is closer to the unmarked male. And we've talked about this in the previous episode. So if we stick to language, 
In the Netherlands, for example, the Dutch word for secretary has a female suffix. That's just the word for it. There is no female, ver there's no male version, sorry. There is no male version of that same job because the male version of that same word, secretary, is an entirely different and very weighty job in the Dutch language, right? Okay. So, so when gender roles started shifting and uh, men got the jobs that secretaries used to do, they changed the entire job title to office manager. Literally that, like we in, in, in the Dutch language, we use the uh, English word now, office manager, right? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We have a lot of, we have a lot of uh, English words. It, it, it separates us from the Belgians who tend to not do that. Um, so interestingly, apparently it's okay to include women when using a male unmarked noun, but it's not done to include men when using a female marked noun. Like we could not continue to use the Dutch word for nurse, which always signified a female nurse. And we could not use the word for the Dutch word for secretary, which always signified a female secretary when men started doing the work. Which does go to show you the inequality of language right there. Yes, I know. So bring this down to basics before we move on to the next section around language and the unmarked. How does this affect our writing? Well, for one, um, I think you would agree with this. We need to know what kind of language our characters would use and think. Yes. If you're writing a historical novel and not turning history on its head, which isn't always useful or appropriate, don't worry. Then check your etymology dictionary and notice that bachelorette only came to use in the early 1900s and that Mrs. said Mrs. M-I-S-S-I-S wasn't a respectful form of address until the 18th century. Previous to that, it was vulgar. Um, it was used for a woman who uh, ran brothels. Um, so remember, language is ever moving and that when you're going back in time, you might have to figure out where you are in that stream. And this, of course, also has to do with character voice, right? How does the character use gendered language? How do they feel about gendered language? What are they signaling with its user avoidance? If you are writing some kind of futuristic society, have they done away with such language? Or maybe they've doubled down on it? What can you say about a society through the use of grammar and gram grammatical markers without saying it out loud? Like, so basically, how can you, what can you say by showing it instead of telling? Agreed. Yes. Um, especially when it comes to character speech. In the narrative, if we're not in a character's head, it is possible to do away with much of this diminutive language when using feminine designations or racial language, etc. We can avoid using mankind when speaking about all people. Humankind or all people are perfectly usable terms and definitely growing in frequency. But as always, know your character. And if you're in character voice, Make sure you're being true to that character's voice. I think this is really is a place where storytelling can be elevated. Like the language employed in a scene or entire story can designate rank and social values without ever actually acknowledging something. For example, always referring to a woman as Dan's mother or Tom's wife without ever giving her a personal name, right? Even a first name. That tells the reader something about the society or at least the group that's being portrayed. Or maybe if, if we're in the character's mind, how they think about someone. 
And, and the same applies for only referring to someone as Mrs. Smith, right? Or um, like what they did back in the day when you got married, you became Mrs. and then the complete full name. Of the man. Yeah. Of the man, which still sort of like when I see that, even in like old, like, 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 um, like costume dramas, I'm like. <gasps> <laughs> I was yeah. really rattled the first time I got mail that was addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Louvi Tucker. I, I like I grew up seeing my mom get mail my mom and dad get mail addressed like that sometimes but it's still like it gave me whiplash I I did not know they still did that I have not I, seen it more than once or twice that is very old because that, that is because basically because you know just to let my inner feminist out that's basically <laughs> that that goes to show that you know within patri- patriarchy um the woman is seen as the object right she is owned by her husband because she completely loses her own identity as soon as she's subsumed is the word i think of yeah so i i I have uh, um, also a a lovely name story um when i got my civil partnership with my ex years ago i mean it's been a decade um we decided that the most equal thing to do would be to attach each other's last name to the end of our own last name. So I became Smith and then his last name, and he became his last name and then Smith, right? That's, you know, inner mm-hmm. feminist or outer feminist as well, by the way. Uh, that seemed the most equal thing to do. So when we were at our city hall to register for the partnership and we ticked this particular box on the form, there's four boxes you can choose when it comes to last names. So we take this particular box, the woman helping us, she warned us that not all companies might get it right because it's a very unusual choice. So I asked her, okay, well, if that happens, what do I do? Like if somebody gets it wrong, if a company gets it wrong, what do I do? Like, who do I call? And she was like, oh, like, don't worry about it. Just ignore it because it doesn't mean anything. So I kindly explained to her that it does mean something does whether or not you make that choice consciously language what comes out of your mouth it does and you did make that choice consciously for your civil partnership and then a civil servant went oh no it it doesn't mean anything whether or not she meant that she was probably trying to not make you stress out but it it still leads to a certain mindset yes because if she had been a rabid feminist like I was she would have known where I was coming from um so yeah, I did say my piece, even though she was, and she was super nice, right? She was just, she was just being a nice, very helpful civil servant. But I was like, I need, I, I stand corrected. <laughs> oh no, I was not. No, I was. I, I was no, no, that's wrong. I wanted her to feel that way, but she didn't. She was. She really gave me the. Okay, you're you're one of those kind of faces right at the end. Um, but yeah. So I, maybe I was not that kindly, but anyway, um, going back, uh, I've become much gentler in my feminism. Well, not always, by the way, it Dep- really depends on the context. Um, anyway, um, going back to the characters we write, consider the way this character is being approached on the page and who the narrator is at the time, right? Is it yeah. possible, right, that, I mean, it, let me rephrase that. Imagine that one POV character always thinks of a young woman in her 20s as Sarah, right? Mm -hmm. Another POV character might only think of 
this Sarah character as Edison's woman, right? Yeah. So done well, this says more about the characters who are having those observations than it does about the author or the actual character named Sarah. And knowing these nuances of your character can help you build distinctive voices for your characters. Exactly. It's another opportunity to say something without telling. Right. So one way to handle difficult language, such as gendered or racial language that you yourself do not agree with, would be to allow the character's dialogue to contain such language. But, you know, as long as they are not the narrator of the whole story, strip out any such usage from the narration of events. Like, erasing historical fact is not actually necessary. It explains why we are, why we are um, here right now, where we are. That it's, it's where we came from. Yeah, no, I find the distinction useful. Like, you're not going to, like, write out the way things were. That's erasure. Um, and it can lead to erasure of people's histories when they're trying to reach for justice. Um, yeah. So, but knowing where you're using that language in your story and why, so that you're doing it consciously. So there's there's really no good reason to view history with rainbow colored glasses. I grew up with that. It throws away so much useful um, information, reality in the carpet. It also throws away some very interesting details that you could work into your story and make history more interesting. Mm-hmm. I had this client, um, when was it? Oh, it's a year ago already. And he'd written a novel about um, a white teenager growing up in a um, in, in an environment that was growing more black mm-hmm. and there were some characters within the story which did not I mean these were the characters that he was criticizing in his writing mm-hmm. and they used they used the n-word a lot yeah so we had this discussion because he was worried about that but it was uh, so the story was um it was semi semi-fictional right it was like auto-fiction yeah so he came to me with the question like how do i how do i make people feel exactly how i felt like growing up i i went to school where i was almost the only white kid so all my friends were not Mm non-white and then you know as i got home and there were the people my neighbors and and my mom's friends and they were also racist that it was like i like i could feel that right like this every time because he hated it when people used the n-word even yeah. at that time so he's like how could i still use the word to show people how pervasive it was but yeah. i don't want to spell it i don't want to spell it out so we had this whole so we came up with some ways he could do it um and also ways to signify that this was something that he was critical of that the the, the protagonist was critical of yeah. while still portraying the um the, the actuality the, yeah the actuality and the characters that he to so the white characters that he tried to uh um who he grew up with and who he felt were kind of ignorant that was really the the the, the sense how we could do that how could he balance that i'm glad so he brought it, so much yeah. intentionality to it and but i think this is the thing it's the consciousness of it yeah it's 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 being aware of what you're doing and he was aware of what it could do so he just wanted to know what is the best way to go about this yes um so that's the conversation that we had um which i think are important i'm not sure whether everybody dares to have conversations like that with their editors 
but I think you really should. You need an editor that's willing to have the conversation with you. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. That, that, that first, right. But this is something that, um, yeah, you, so you need, if you specifically, if you're writing, uh, um, something like this, you need to find somebody you can have, you can engage around this debate. You can engage with, uh, yeah. Anyway, complete, just what we were talking about just made me made me just just the novel just popped back into my into my head uh no I'm glad you brought it up yeah but I know you want to talk um I don't know if we're going to talk about this this uh because the other thing I'm thinking about um is description yes characters yeah that's the other thing that came up like how about uh description because that has a lot of historical baggage as well whether we describe characters or whether we're describing places it does it does and it has a lot of historical creativity like the way things were described if you don't mind though I think it's such a big topic that I would like to devote all of our next episode to it yeah that's that sounds good I wasn't sure whether we've made that decision yet I forgot um but in that case if we go back to marked and unmarked language what else do you have for us what else do you want to talk about Um, We've already alluded to it, but I wanted to spend a little time with the livingness of language. Yes, I put that word together myself, and I'm probably not the first one to do it. Um, I really want to suggest that we as writers should not be afraid of designing new words like I just did. Um, I know a lot of people, quote unquote, make up new words. But to be honest, these new words are often designed based on like Latin, Greek, Celtic, Arabic, et cetera, root words and syllables, and then prefixes and suffixes that we've gathered into English over the centuries. And then when we are trying to reach for a new concept, we put these new words together based on the, the roots that already exist inside of our language. And I know this happens in Chinese because I studied that, um, Mandarin specifically, where they'll take old words and put them together for new things like when electricity came in China, then they had to find a way to describe that. Um, so basically, yeah, I'm focusing on this livingness of language and specifically because in English, because that's the one I know best. Mm-hmm. So when you say living, you're really talking about growing and changing and evolving. Yes. Um, almost like, you know, we, we grow new cells and we lose old cells in our own bodies. There's a lot of words in the English language that we don't really use anymore, at least in the U.S., like the word chap or fellow in reference to a man, although we still use that word in reference to like fellows or fellowships in academia. Um, spinster has pretty much fallen away from use, which is a word for an older unmarried woman. Um, can you think of any other words that are disappearing? Well, to be fair, I'm not sure if I'm, that I mind the word spinster falling away because it had a bad reputation. Although I do think it's being replaced right now with the crazy cat lady. Uh um, that a bit. Yeah, so I think that's the modern, the modern I version. I think of some spinster. people are starting. Sorry, I just spoke over you. I think no, some I people are are owning that term now. To be like, I have some friends that are like, my desire in life to become the crazy cat lady and have all the cats. Oh yeah, but that is my like that's one of my ambitions. So, uh, so I think maybe we've reclaimed spinster. We just added a new word to it. Um, so I, I can't think of any words that are disappearing right now. But I'm thinking about words that are changing because fellow might be gone, but we still use the word fella, like with an a at the end. Yeah, I don't in spoken really hear language. It a lot. I think it might be used more in the UK. I'm not sure. Um, I think so. Yeah. And 
in Dutch, um, I'm thinking, so also, so I'm not talking about words that are disappearing um, necessarily yet, but, but words that are changing. So the Dutch word for mister used to be my, the Dutch word for my, or mine actually, and, and the word for Lord, and they were put together. But the way it's written these days and the way it's pronounced, it doesn't sound like that at all anymore. So the whole my Lord, that mm-hmm. is not, you can no longer see that in the, oh. in the word that we use. So that ten, that sort of, that layer Shifted. is gone. Yeah. But, oh, there is a word actually that has disappeared. The Dutch word for miss, as in the un- unmarried miss. Yeah. Uh, so M-I-S-S. Um, it's no longer used as a title in Dutch. So in the Dutch language, we no longer distinguish between whether or not a woman is married. Oh, which is always good. <laughs> I think of language like a plant. Some new leaves grow, some old leaves, leaves fall away. It's really natural. Um, I learned a new word a few days ago, aliosexual. It's a word that means someone is sexually attracted to others. Um, this word was coined in response to the idea that calling everyone who experienced sexual attraction normal and people who did not typically experience sexual attraction um, asexual create a gateway to othering asexuality. So mm-hmm. um, this is a place where being unmarked, othered the marked in this case, asexuality being the, the term that was being othered. So um, yes, we do need a term for beings who experience sexual attraction to acknowledge the existence of the possibility that there could be people who do not experience sexual attraction. Mm-hmm. I've seen the word, but I actually did not know what it meant. So I'm I literally dug I it up when I was like looking at other things because I'm like, I'm a geek. I read random stuff. That, and I was like, oh, this is a new word. But this is like what you said, like language keeps uh, changing because we need, um, because we are growing as, as, as a people as well. So our needs are changing as well. And, and these days we're more outspoken. Like people, a lot of people say, oh, but this, di- this didn't exist back then, right? Like people will say um, ADHD. We didn't have ADHD back then. Uh, yeah, we or, did. Yeah, we didn't have yeah. a word for it. Yes. Or, or people weren't trans. Like everybody is trans these days, but we didn't do that back in the day. Uh, uh, no, but that is not true. There is just, you know, we we've we fought some battles, so now we can. There's more room for visibility, for asking for rights. Um, so you, there's more visibility these days, maybe, and we have terms for it these days. That does not mean that these things did did not exist, like that that. But yeah. that is that's just something that I I I'm just. Um, it's interesting because I've run into this myself where you have a book and you have some of these terms that you know about these days, but you're writing it in a time period without language for it. So that can be one of those challenging points where you negotiate with yourself or have a talk with your editor or other writers figuring out how do I say this thing that I know existed, but hmm. the time period or the setting I have it for doesn't have language for it. You so. had that in because in, one of your novels, the, the protagonist is non-binary. She's gender fluid, yeah. So I've just settled on using female pronouns for her for the first three books. And right now I'm looking at the last two books as she leans more into that. And I'm trying to figure out how to write it so that it's 
accessible to the reader and still true to her shifting identity. So yeah. that's something that uh, we might even talk about more later. Yes, but <laughs> it's, it's necessarily on a line. But I, I bring it up because this is a fantasy setting. So at the, in the, at the time, words like gender fluid and non-binary did not exist. Yeah. I've it even didn't, considered yeah. having her meet a culture with other people who are gender fluid or have a different concepts of sexuality, just so she can like grapple with the language around it. But yeah. I haven't decided whether or not to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this, how do we incorporate, incorporate this, all of this into our fiction? Like you've already, I mean, you already said like you're, you're playing, like you're, you're playing with that in your work. Uh, mm-hmm. So how do we incorporate this livingness of language in our fiction? I think we have to stay curious. Um, if there's not a word for something you want to say or the words that say it don't support your greater intent with your story, go ahead and explore, possibly make a new word. It's okay. Language is flexible. Worst case scenario, you have to explain what the word means the first time you use it. I'm not sure you want to give me that much power to create like a whole new language. Ah. I trust you. I mean, Tolkien made up an entire language for his books and that didn't stop people from reading them. I even tried to learn Elven at one point. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, I saw this episode of Rita yesterday, which is a Danish Netflix show about a school teacher. And two of the characters were speaking like dirty Elven to each other to get their way. Like they were trying, like one of them wanted to move and she was trying to convince the other. And he was like, don't speak dirty Elvish to me to get what you want. (laughs) So I was like, that's so that's still a thing. Okay. Anyway, do you have any resources for those wanting to look up the history of words? Because I think you've mentioned um, yeah. the, the online website. Yeah, my favorite one-stop website for English words is the etymology dictionary, etymonline.com. Well, it's in the show notes. Um, yes. So uh, searching Google or DuckDuckGo is also useful. Um, and there's always the old fashioned to go ask your local librarian or nearest college library staff to help you. I used to work in a college library at the front desk and college libraries, uh, university libraries, they're actually more accessible to your, their surrounding communities than you might think. We had tons of community members coming in all the time, but usually it was only older people that made use of our community services, which is a shame. Um, younger people can do it too. But yeah, there's, there's actually a lot of resources and these people get really excited to be asked to look something up that they haven't been asked a thousand times before. Um, do you have any suggestions, Maria? Uh, top of my head, I would say, depending on what kind of words you are making up, maybe, maybe check with people who speak a similar language. To see that one's if a good you're one. not misusing or taking anything, like we've talked about cultural appropriation um, in episode four, I think. So just to make sure that you're not using words or are, are um, like you said, we often create words by using roots and then the prefixes and the suffixes from other language that we already know, right? So we combine something mm-hmm. from the bits and pieces that we already have. So it wouldn't hurt to check if you have created something that you shouldn't have created because it hurts a particular community. Um, so that would be a, a more practical thing, but also less practical, be gentle on yourself and just do your best and just 
you know, all this checking and research, that is you doing your best. Um, failing forward is always better than never putting your work out there and never playing with it, never being curious. Um, no, yes, it's it's actually completely practical to be gentle on yourself because if you're too hard on yourself, you won't ever keep trying. Um, Good point. Yes. Did I ever tell you about the first book I ever published? I'm, it's I'm so- not sure. It sold like eight copies and two of the copies got returned. Oh, no. No, no, no. Oh, that's bad. Oh, I'm sorry. It's history now. It was extremely valuable learning at the time. Um, so it, it it needed a lot. But I, I tried and I learned and I'm really happy I did it. So like you said, fail forward. Small changes add up to big differences over time. Like you, you kept saying, oh, you made so many changes in the book that you just finished reading that I just published. You did, um, yes. It was a lot of small changes, to be honest, like a word here, a word there. It adds up. Um, yes. So like, like my boyfriend teaching me not to use that one word. Right. And, um, but I, I do want to say about your, because we didn't finish that conversation at the beginning, is that just like rereading your novel or reading the final version of, of, of your of your novel, uh, The Queen's Enforcer, um, which is not just for people it's not under your name it's not under bethany tucker it's under uh shiara darren if you yes. want to look it up <laughs> just uh, because if you're looking for beth bethany did not write that book okay um my alter ego wrote it because it's really dark and twisted and and disgusting at some points but really good um it did feel like there was a it kind of felt so I did so just to, I did the developmental ed- a bit of the de- developmental editing a little bit. Um, so I, I I looked at it before you send it to the proofreader, if I'm correct. Yes. yes. Um, so I did a little bit of that little language editing, uh, making things consistent, stuff like that. It was just it felt like one character specifically that you took away a layer just by using different language around this character. Yeah, and he had felt really flat to me when I was. That was one of my comments. Yeah, and now he is so alive, and it's he is so tangible, and now he's become one of my favorite characters. Well, when I was editing it, I felt like I couldn't quite grasp who he was. Like there was such yeah. a distance between me as the reader and the character on the page, but now it feels like there is no page between us. Right, the characters here with was here with me. And that is, and I also realized because I, I I recognize a lot of the language, so I know I knew you didn't make major changes. He, I didn't change his dialogue. I didn't change no. any of his actions. I didn't change a single plot point. All I did was go in and very carefully work with the language around him, the language people used yes. on him, and the language that the narrating voice used on him. Yes, and that was just it lifted it up. Um, yeah. So that goes to show how those little little tweaks. Although it were in your case, because the book is like 250,000 words. So in your case, those little tweaks were a lot. Um, But yeah, it goes to show how it completely shapes just by tweaking the language. It completely shapes and brings a character to life, really. We can do the same thing when we're writing stories where perhaps there is racism or ableism or something present where, I mean, there is some extreme racism and other things present in the book that we're talking about, The Queen's Enforcer. But because of the language I used around it, 
we talked about it, it's on the page, but it's very obvious what's being supported in the story. Yeah, and what is no not one's gonna, supported. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of racism in the story, but no one's going to walk away thinking racism is a good thing. No. And that's the language no. choice of the narration. It's also the plot yeah. choices. You can talk about these really difficult things and still be very clear on where you stand. Yes, absolutely. And everything of that has to do with language and being it conscious does. about it. Okay. Really, really conscious. And I'm grateful that you pointed things out because as conscious as I tried to be, 240,000 words or whatever in, you still miss things. <laughs> yes. Oh, I was 10,000 words off. That just. Hey, yeah. um, so next week, we're actually going to. So this is the second episode we're doing about language and marking and, and unmarking. We have, like you said, we have a little bit more to discuss. So next week, we're going to talk about that. We're going to specifically talk about description. Places and characters. Yeah. Yes. Um, I can't wait. I'm really excited, actually. I've been excited for all of these episodes. And then we will finally have bonus material for everyone because we're just kind of putting all this marked and unmarked language in the same bonus material. Yes. Sounds great. Okay. I will talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you then. Hey, writers. It's me again, Bethany. I already told you that I ordered 52 weeks of writing, the blue or the third volume of Marielle's author journal and planner, remember? Well, it came and it's just as beautiful and fun as I expected. I've been flipping through the pages, reading the quotes and thinking about how I'm going to 2022. Like I said before, 2022 will be the third year I use 52 weeks of writing and I don't plan to ever stop at this rate. It not only helps me get books written and edited, but I also publish even though I moved across the continent this year. 52 Weeks of Writing is available in three editions, a beautiful Persian green, that's my take on the name of the color, a flavorful fuchsia, and now a bold textured deep blue, my favorite. It's also available in three formats, paperback, my preference, PDFs, and now an ebook format. Go to mswordsmith.nl forward slash journal to find links to your preferred format and store. Happy writing. Thank you for listening. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you want to join the conversation, fill out our write and read a questionnaires. Both can be found in the show notes and on our website, representationmatters.art. That's dot A-R-T. If you want to be the first to hear when a new episode comes out, sign up to our newsletter. And if you found this helpful, Please rate and review on your favorite podcast app to help other writers find us too.